Steve Jones presents Jonesy's Jukebox. You're listening to Jonesy's Jukebox on Cal OS. That was uh, Grand Funk. We're an American band <coughs> produced by Todd Rundgren. And before that, we started off with the Rolling Stones, Monkey Man. And uh, <coughs> Mr. Rundgren is in the studio with us. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you. Nice to be here with you and, again. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I remember seeing that band, Grand Funk. Uh, Hyde Park in London. It was a free festival, and I was like a mile back, and I was like fourteen, fifteen, and all I remember was Farnham with the long hair and that silver thing around his. Uh huh. He, he looked like a like a when he's still dressed like an Indian or something. Yeah. Like that. You know, sometimes he would wear the headdress, but often it was just shirtless with the armbands and stuff and uh, the white white pantaloons. Yeah, <laughs> you tidy whitey with his package. Yeah, well, that was um, that was probably before we're an American band when they were still a trio and they were substantially a jam band. Yeah, yeah, they would uh, uh, short on the songs and long on the the riffing. On, you know, on the riffing was uh, the, the the singer. He did he sing a few songs? I mean, I know the big hit, some kind of wonderful. It's half the drummer, right? We're an American band as Donnie Brewer, the drummer. Yeah. And uh, some kind of wonderful, that's Mark Farner, uh, as well as on Locomotion, the other hit that I had with them. That's Mark Farner. So Mark Farner um, essentially has that real high, kind of clear R&B-ish kind of voice. Yeah, yeah. And Donnie has more of a like straight-ahead rock and roll voice. The drummer. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Don't, he, don't he sing like the first part of that? Uh, some kind of wonderful. Uh, I don't know because I didn't do that. Yeah, record. okay. Yeah, I think, uh, ironically enough, I think it was Frank Zappa did it. Really? Yeah, he produced. I did two records with him, and then they figured, oh, at least you know, let's ask some other weird guy, and they asked Frank Sinatra. Uh, Frank, Frank Sinatra, he's yeah, on it too, huh? Yeah, that would have been great, uh, <laughs> Frank Zappa, to do it. But he did a very conventional sort of production. You would have expected something weird, but yeah. No. Yeah, I mean that's down the pipe. That track, some kind of wonderful. Uh huh. Did they write that? Or was that an old? I think that's an oldie. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's an oldie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. Uh, it was a big. It was a big hit though. I liked it. I liked your record too though. Oh, thank you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When are we getting to me? <laughs> <laughs> did you? Uh, did, it, did that sell a lot of records? The one. I mean, American Band's a big song. Still yeah. to this day, it's one of them songs that, you know, mm -hmm. did that did that sell a lot? It did sell a lot, yes. It was a multi-million selling record. I remember the party they had celebrating the great success of it. I mean, the whole thing was, I've never been involved in anything like it since. They had, you know, the management had a whole plan for how they were going to roll the band out. And they knew that it was different. The band had a terrible critical reputation. You know, the critics didn't like the band. And they never had, like, top 40 hits or anything like that. 
and they had just switched managements from their old um, T- Terry Knight was their manager, but he was also their producer, and he wasn't a very good producer, which is why their records were not yeah. uh, bigger hits. And um, we went into the studio. We knew that the album would be called We're an American Band. We knew that that would be the single. So the very first thing we did at Criterion Studios down in Miami was first day we did the track, basic track, and maybe some of the vocals for We're an American Band did a few overdubs and finished it up the next early the next day and went right into the mastering lab that was in Criterion and mastered the single and shipped it out that afternoon. Once we had done that, there was a thing they could do in the old days. You could essentially pre-sell the record. You could get pre-orders for the record, and the record would chart even if nobody had even heard it. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Well, so the was that shady? It, I don't you know. I don't. There is no record business anymore. So what's the difference? Yeah. You know? um, but uh, yeah, it, it a week later we're still in the studio working on the album, and it's number a one. A week later, it's in the top twenty. <laughs> it's the top twenty a week later, <laughs> and then the actual copies get to radio. You know, they press up the co- enough copies to get it to radio, and they start playing it. Then it goes top five the next week or something like that. And we're still just finishing the record. Yeah. So I'd never been involved in anything like that where it was so kind of almost baked in. You yeah. know, that you knew exactly everything that was going to happen. You knew it was going to be a hit. Wow. All you had to do was make the hit. Yeah. You know? <laughs> what label was that on? That was, um, were they on Capital, maybe? I think uh, they might have been on Capital. Uh, but I never, that's not a detail I pay much attention to. Yeah. Stay focused on the music, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, baby. Um, so... You're you're busy. You've got uh, an autobiography. Yeah, that's been out since like Christmas. It was a hit before it was out. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah, is it? Yeah, New York Times bestseller list, <laughs> and I was still, still writing, writing it. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me see if I can say this: the individualist digressions, dreams, and dissertations. Dissertations. Dissertation. What does that mean? It means uh, like a speech, oh, okay. <laughs> no, or the, uh, a, a, something about a particular topic. Um, it has to do with the form of the book. I I can read some books, you know, certain authors I can read, but in general, if I see somebody's autobiography, I I think I'm not really going to start that. Yeah, because I might get halfway through and get bored, and not want to read it yeah. you know, anymore. So I decided I wanted a book that catered to my reading habits. So the book is essentially every every page is a whole chapter. So you can open the book anywhere and just read one. You're page. not following a story. Yeah, throughout. you're not following a long arc and stuff and like end. that. You know, I'm not describing the curtains and the rug and things. You know, it's very pithy, and each page is three paragraphs. And the, and consequently, one is um, a digression, something I remember, you know, that happened. Uh, the dream part essentially is the emotional aspects of it, you know, because people often jumble the two together when they're telling a story. Yeah. You know, he did this and then I felt that, and you know, and it's trying to follow the the actual action of what's going yeah. on as opposed to, you know, the inner 
character or something like that. So I pulled those things apart, and then I had a paragraph at the end that essentially is justification for why I ever wrote it in the first place. Yeah. Do you do you dream much? Uh, I do dream. You sometimes rem- I don't dream, and then sometimes I dream a lot. It's yeah. weird. Um, I haven't I haven't remembered that I've had a dream in a while. It doesn't mean you don't dream. Sure. You know, there are, uh, I guess there are levels of brain activity that can yeah. get so deep that you don't remember any of it. But, yeah. Um, I sort of depend on that because um, it's part of the creative process. You can't, like, completely, you know, mentalize everything you do. You have to depend on your subconscious to do some of the work. Yeah. And so... Um, I'm aware of the fact that below my conscious thoughts, there's still stuff going on. Yeah. There. yeah. Do you do you sleep well, or are you up four times a night? Um. Well, not that often. I get up to pee usually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, that's always. Well, it's. Um, I've discovered that as I've gotten older, um, if I stay in one position too long. You know, like my knees or something will start to like, yeah, like freeze up. Yeah. So I find that I have to constantly change my position yeah. all night long just to get comfortable. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 a tosser and turner for sure. I think it. You know, your sleep patterns change as you get older. Um, yeah. It used to be I didn't need as much sleep. Yeah. And now I find I can. I'll take all the sleep I yeah. can get. Yeah. Do you ever get into that feeling when you're? If, do you have naps? Do you take naps? Uh, I I do on occasion, but I don't like to because you, you once I'm getting in, I don't want to get back get out. groggy afterwards. Yeah. I'm the opposite. I have to have naps. If I don't have a nap around 3 or 4 o'clock, then I'm groggy trying to stay awake. Ah, okay. It's it's a nightmare. But my, my point was, I mean, maybe you feel this when you come out of a deep sleep when you're waking up in the morning but that feeling where you're like you feel like you're somewhere else it's like a it's so weird it's like it's called, what is life feeling yeah it's called the hypnagogic state which is you you are in a state of semi-consciousness essentially and you're aware of everything around you but you're not fully up and moving your body yeah. around and that sort of thing until you come back to reality it's the same thing that happens when you're on your way to sleep yeah, when you, you get, uh, but sometimes it happens so fast you don't notice. But you go into a state where essentially you've relinquished control of your body. Yeah, you know, but you're not fully unconscious. Yeah, nice one. Thank you for explaining that. No problem. Hypnagogia. Hypnagogia. You got a book signing f- Friday uh, from two to four at Amoeba. A book signing. Well, if that many people show up, we go two to four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes not a lot of people show up, and we don't go the whole time, which is why I say it starts at two. Um, but don't show up at 3.45. Yeah. Because... <laughs> it's a weird time, though, isn't it, on a Friday? Isn't it, like, busy? Well, it's it's pretty much part of a pattern, because the tour that I'm doing now is a hybridized, you know, concert tour and book promotion thing, yeah. so... And you're playing Friday too. At the yeah, I played th- Thursday and Friday, and uh, 
the show is essentially kind of based around the book or some aspects of the book. The first act especially is, you know, in the time period that most people find interesting, which was when I first got into the record business and, and that sort of evolution. Then we have a little intermission and we do a Q&A with the audience. That's unusual during a concert tour. We set up an iPad in the lobby and people can ask questions of me and then we put it up on the video. Oh, at the concert? Yeah. At the Wilton? Yes. Wow. And then we do a second set, but the second set is different every night. Different, you know, just we have a larger list of songs and I just put together about ten of them for the second set. Do you always have, have, you, have you had the same band for a while? Uh, pretty much. Uh, that's uh, Prairie Prince. Used to, well, when he does play in the tubes sometimes. <laughs> but yeah. he was in the tubes when I met him. <clears throat> and uh, Chasm Sultan, who was, of course, in Utopia. Jesse Gress, who's been playing with me since, like, the late 80s. Uh, Greg Hawks, he's more from the Cars. He's yeah. kind of more recent because I didn't even know him until we did that new Cars thing. And then after that, when... Um, my former keyboard player sort of retired from the road. Greg stepped in. He's been doing it ever since. And then we added somebody from the, uh, if any of my fans remember, we had a big band in the late 90s around Nearly Human with, you know, backup singers and horn section and everything. Yeah. And Bobby Strickland from the horn section is in this band for the purposes of just a more complete sound. Yeah. Why did, why did you call yourself Utopia, not just Todd Rundgren? Um, after or around something, anything, when I was starting to get um, known as a solo artist, my songwriting pattern changed because I wasn't just a guitar player in yeah. a band. So I started writing on the piano a lot more. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, most of what I was writing on the was on the piano, and I thought, well, I don't want to stop that. I'm making some progress here, but it's taken a big bite out of my guitar playing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so I wanted to have a band so that I wouldn't lose my guitar chops, and that essentially was the point of Utopia. So I did both. Yeah. Um, sometimes it would be my show. Sometimes it would be Utopia. Yeah, show. yeah. So it's fun and more fun. Uh, it's fun sometimes. Um, it can be challenge. You know, being in a band is challenging. You know, the world's know. most successful band um, only lasted like eight yeah. years or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess in some ways, uh, bands have a most bands have a shelf life, and ones that last from the '60s till now, like the Stones, that's something freakish. That's about it, right? Yeah, that's about so, it. The zombies. <laughs> yeah. Did you see the? Uh... Rock and roll. No, I don't watch. I never watch that stuff. <laughs> no, uh, I, I have never paid it. I've only been forced to pay attention to it recently because of the nomination. Before that, I didn't know anything about it. Never watched the shows. Never paid attention to the nominees or anything or the whole process. I didn't realize how <laughs> weird the whole thing was. Well, it's kind of weird, man. You it's know, very weird. The, <laughs> the band can go, but if you're bringing your old lady or kids, you have to pay ten grand. There's that it. weirdness. That that's you know a specific complaint that some of the inductees have had. But for me, you know, I was 35 when they established the so-called Hall of Fame. Yeah. So I'm already, like, in 
in rock and roll terms, I'm already over the hill. Yeah. You know, it's like I don't yeah. need this, you know. And plus, I never considered myself a rock and roll musician. Like, I have played it, and some people have played it, but I consider myself just a musician. I'll play any freaking genre, yeah. you know. I don't want to exist in that box. So I have, I've always taken umbrage when people just say rock musician, Todd Rundgren, because if you look at my greater catalog, it's not – there is some in there, but it isn't what it's all about. But I think you're more rock and roll than Janet Jackson. <laughs> well, that was, you know, one of the things I studied up on was, you know, when they first established it. Well, Hall of Fame is a weird thing. That's a sports thing. Right. That's for people who haven't done it for like 20 years. So you can sort of measure them, you know, against, yeah. uh, you know, measure their career, measure them against other players. And it's based on statistics a lot, you know, really measurable things. Musicians don't have to retire. You don't have to stop. Right. So. Although a lot of them should do. Yeah, maybe some should do, but your measure isn't fully taken until you're dead. Yeah. You know, and so, like, (laughs) if I'm still alive, I don't want to be in freaking Hall of Fame, you know. Um, And I I thought, they're certainly going to run out of people way before, you know, things get to that. And And I just the other night confirmed to myself that theory, the first class that was inducted. First of all, it was about 65%, 70% black musicians. And then with the white guys that you would expect, like Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley. Yeah. That. The most recent class is all English musicians, <laughs> except, right. for, except for the two ladies. Janet Jackson. Janet and, Jackson uh, and Stevie Nicks. And the, and the only black act was Janet Jackson. Yeah. So that's... There's something going on there, you know, in terms of whatever the original mandate was. It has to have shifted way into some other place. Well, I'm sure it's politics involved as well, you know, even though you supposedly vote on it, right? It's the members or it's the people who... Nobody knows who. Yeah. Nobody, there's no no list somewhere where you can say, you know, who it is. I mean, even for the Oscars, you can... You know, it's people who belong to certain um, uh, guilds and stuff like that who yeah. get the ballots, so you can find out who who votes for that. But it's kind of a mystery. Uh, supposedly, if you've been in, you get a ballot. You, uh, if you've already been inducted, I've got, I've got in. Yeah, and do you get and you get a ballot? I don't know. I've never seen it. <laughs> I don't even have my bleeding statue. It's still in. <laughs> Because we didn't show up. Uh, uh, yeah, I heard. Yeah, John Lydon wouldn't show up, would he? And Bowie didn't show up. Well, that's what I mean. It's the, uh, that's the irony because even a lot of the acts that went in this year, like The Cure and even Def Leppard, music. Yeah, and they asked them, and they say, "Well, it's you know, it's, we're English. It's not really our thing. You know, we're into the real rock and roll, like from the '50s and stuff like that. Yeah. That when it was like kids' music. You know, and this whole idea of like old." people's establishment, you know, dress in a tuxedo and pay $10,000 for a table and that sort of stuff. doesn't seem like... A seat, not a table. Yeah, a seat per seat. I believe believe so. I could be wrong. It just doesn't sound like rock and roll, does it? Of course not. So... uh, Ozzy didn't show up, did he? (laughs) Maybe maybe not not on purpose. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, No, I don't don't know. Uh, Went to the wrong event. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're gonna we're here with Todd Rundgren, and uh, having a good old chit chat.
Um, if you want to see Todd, he's playing tomorrow at the Wilton, May 9th, and Friday, May 10th. He's got an autobiography out. He's doing a book signing from two to four at Amoeba. And we just happened we're going to play a Todd Rundgren song right now. Oh, jeez. I Saw the Light from Somewhere Anything album in 1972. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Except it's something, anything. What did I say? Somewhere. <laughs> I did? Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere over the ring. Yeah. Take it away, son. You're listening to Jonesy's Jukebox on Cal OS. That was uh, Todd Rundgren. No, it wasn't. <laughs> It was Todd Rundgren. He did produce that record. Yes, he did. That was the New York Dolls, Personality Crisis. Beautiful. And then I saw the light from the Something Anything album. You are correct, sir. Did I get it right that time? Yeah. <laughs> Which was released in 1972. I know we talked a bit about the... Uh, I'm sure you're, you're bored talking about albums that you've produced but and I know we talked about it when you were here before about the New York Dolls because I'm such a big fan when you know that was a big <clears throat> shift for me that band when you know prior to them I was like 16 or yeah around 16 and I was a massive Faces fan Rod Stewart and the ah. Faces I was a fan of the original faces small faces small faces yes With steve marriott yes yes ian mcclagan kenny jones amazing and band yeah. ronnie lane yeah they were a bit more trippy for sure well the, you know ichiku park was certainly trippy but i mean tin soldier that yeah. song just slays me every time yeah. i hear it yeah. he, has, he has a great voice yeah soul voice and then there was humble pie <laughs> yeah i didn't mind them I, I didn't mind them, but then they were kind of like more of a jam band, you know, lots of long, you know, I don't need no doctor for 10 minutes, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Um, he was in it. Peter for, Frampton was for in For a little it. bit, yeah. 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 He can't play anymore. He's, I he's, heard. I heard he's got, um, I'm, I don't know what the condition is, but I heard that he's has announced that he's retiring. Yeah. So there you go. He ain't getting in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He is or isn't? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think he's in there. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> he's I don't retired. care about me, why don't I care about him? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. So the dolls, uh, did you get, get understand, did you think, who are these lunatics, I'm do the best I can, or did you kind of get the, the wildness about them, like, you know, Guys dressed up as women. Well, there was a thing going on at the time in, in New, New York, York City. Yeah. You know, it was a lot of bands competing, you know, Wayne County, and uh, uh, it became a magnet for a lot of that. You know, Iggy Pop kind of left the Stooges, Stooges. and became part of that scene. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it was very... Club-oriented, very, you know, almost like pop-up clubs. Yeah. You know, they would find an empty storefront, and the band would play in there. Right. And I realized there was a scene going on, and I also had bought a house upstate and realized that I was going to be spending a lot less time in New York. So I said, one of these bands is going to break out of this 
thing, and it seemed like it was going to be the New York Dolls. They were, like, starting to rise above the rest of it because, ironically enough, even when incompetence is the yardstick, you know, some people are still more competent than others, you yeah. know. You know, that was always the thing about them and the thing about, you know, punk that essentially emulated them. It was a band that critics could understand because critics could imagine themselves playing that music. Yeah. And that's kind of what set them off. But that sort of effect applies to anybody who hasn't really taken playing seriously before yeah. and wants to pick up a guitar and stuff. And then you suddenly realize that a, a basic component of rock and roll was always your attitude. Yeah. Was always not just playing the guitar. How you held the guitar, yeah. you know, and what you did with your, you know, yeah, yeah. How you bobbed around with the guitar, sure. you know, what you did with your hair and how you dressed and all that other stuff. And so, you know, that was kind of the criteria that was, you know, was taboo to go past like three chords in a song. Yeah, it was taboo to play anything slower than you know 140 beats per minute or yeah. something like that. You know, it became. Um, it became its own thing, essentially, following that usual cyclic thing that happens with with music or any sort of popular art form. It gets all overly refined. Yeah. It gets industrialized. You know, it gets taken over by other entities who don't actually care about the quality of it, but how much money can be made with it. And then it all breaks down again to something that is bottom up. Yeah. So after punk you know after with disco we had punk and yeah. then after punk we had uh, 80s um uh, arena rock synth rock and arena rock and stuff like that very much formulaic and then we had grunge yeah broke down again stuff like that and the last breakdown i believe was actually um edm was the last breakdown Who's Where idiot? one guy can take his computer and go oh. into his bedroom yeah. and just come up with a thump, 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 and weird sounds and stuff like that, and then go out and play to 100, 200, 500,000 people. With his computer. Yeah, with nothing but his computer. It sickens me that people... I can delay here, okay. <laughs> right, okay. I saw somebody jump for the button, okay. It's so very, very simple, yeah. you know. That it does have that, you know, all those components of rock and roll. You, know, you teach yourself how to do it. You know, it's a, a, all artifice. You know, it's almost very little actual material. Right. And just make it look huge. Yeah. But at the concert, I mean, if you look at the crowd, they go way more nuts than, than a, a rock concert. Because it's about them. You know, that was yeah. the other genius thing about it. It's yeah. like, you know, it's... It's something they can understand, and it's all about them because the lights, there's lights on the guy on the stage, but almost all the lights are going on the audience, yeah. you know. It's all about you guys, you know, yeah. laser beams on you yeah. and stuff like that. So um, that's why it's so popular. It's easy to comprehend, and it's all about you and the people around you. Maybe some substance, isn't it? being taken as well oh that always helps you know but, but when was it Twas ever thus you know yeah started with beer none you know <laughs> it's yeah. like, got a little more complicated quaaludes yeah quaaludes uh acid um did you meth did you, you know? did you do a lot of acid when you were young i didn't do uh acid per se 
I have oh, like you... I have likely you know it's not like you went and got a prescription for it, so you never knew what you were taking. Some okay. some guy on the street made it, so it was called acid, and I presume that I had taken LSD in some form or another at least once. But when I was um, when I was working. Uh, and with the first version of Utopia, I somehow came into possession of a shoebox full of peyote buttons. Yeah. And I was high for a month. Yeah. I would clean three buttons in the morning. <laughs> I'd have one for breakfast, one for lunch, and one for dinner. And, and until pretty much the shoebox ran out. I don't think I ever, I did mushrooms. I don't think I ever did peyote. What's, what's the symptoms? Um, you... Well, there, there are similar. Strippy. Yeah, they're both they're both trippy. One the essential ingredient in peyote is mescaline. The essential ingredient in mushrooms is psilocybin. Um, both of them can have similar effects, and both and and like most psychedelics drugs, it's really tailored. It's going to be your trip. It's not going to be exactly like anybody else's. But and it lasts a long time. One one trip. Um, yeah, but also the you know there's a popular thing nowadays is microdosing, and essentially that's what I was doing. I was not ever I wasn't getting out of my mind. I would go through the entire day completely functional. Oh. Um, I would go to you know we were building a studio. I would go and wire the studio wow. while I'm you know, yeah. tripping out. <laughs> but that's the whole thing. You don't. You can function. There are there are times when you want to you know have your ego destroyed because that needs to happen every once in a while. But there are times when you just want to get kind of this airy expansive. To me, it seemed like I was like six inches taller than I normally was. I was suddenly over everybody's head a little bit and I could see things coming before they actually happened. Wow. Like mind bending kind of stuff. Yeah. It, it's just a different, it's, more of a state of mind rather than just like hallucinating yeah. all the time. Yeah, it's just a completely enlightening. Um, yeah, you just see things differently. You don't take things as seriously as you normally do. You know, <clears throat> you get a sort of emotional detachment and a certain amount of amusement out of everything. Yeah, and uh, and that's good for you. Maybe you had your platform boots on when you felt six inches taller. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I accidentally put two pairs of platform boots on. What are we doing? Are we playing some music? Yeah. What you got there? Play something from Wizard. Wizard, we're going to play uh, a true star. Yeah, this is after the psychedelics. This was after it? Yeah. Jonesy's during, ju- during and after. <laughs> Jonesy's jukebox, here with Todd Rundgren. Take it away, son. You're listening to Jonesy's jukebox on Cal OS. It is 1253, 1253 <laughs> on a. On a Wednesday. I dosed you. <laughs> you have. I'm seeing four of you. Um, that was Patti Smith, Dancing Barefoot, from an album, Wave, that was released in 1979, that you produced, Mr. Todd Rundgren. How was that experience? Did you Was you hip to her way before you did an album? Um Patty and I were friends before she ever had a band. Um, she was one of the first people I met when I moved into New York City. Is that what she after was hanging I quit out? The Nas. She was kind of hanging uh, out with uh, that Basquiat and all that stuff. Um, no, Robert Maplethorpe. Oh, that's sorry. Yeah. See, I'm I'm off today. I'm not on it. <laughs> Everything's a little off. It's that bird, you know. It kind of just spooked you. <laughs> that, 
the that, bird in the driveway. That was so bizarre, man. There's a, there was a out in the parking lot of KLOS. Uh, apparently, it's been going on since six this morning. Uh, but there, there's a, a crow. It's obviously a, a baby, and it can't fly. And the mother's hovering around, trying to get it to fly or protect it. And uh, it's bizarre, man. I think it's I think it's uh, it's done because the legs look all smashed up. Well, that, that took your parking space too. That so. was the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> the parking lot is so busy today, and there's this bleeding bird with this whole spot. <laughs> Yeah, and the staff is setting up a perimeter around yeah, it as well. Putting you know? pylons around it. <laughs> I don't think he's going to make it. Uh, it didn't look happy. To burn, no, it looked confused, like I am. Looked very confused. Um, uh, do you think uh, she's very talented lyrically, Patty Smith? She always was. Well, she was originally. A poet, and an, uh, I always considered her an illustrator as well as a poet. I mean, she does some amazing drawings right off the top of her head. And uh, she was working in um, a bookstore at the time. Yeah. And the first time I saw her perform, I was just... I mean, we were just kind of friends that hung out, and I knew that she wrote poetry, and I knew that she drew, and she wasn't actually even living in the city yet. She yeah. was commuting to New Jersey and, like, staying with people in the city before she moved in with Robert Maplethorpe. And uh, I saw her do a solo show with just, like, a little record player and stuff like that, and she essentially freewheeled the whole thing. Yeah ad-libbed poetry, sang along with songs on in this very innocent, childish yeah. sort of voice, and danced, you know, played like a Martha and the Vandellas yeah. and danced, and she can really dance, too. So it was just an incredibly engaging evening, and um, I thought that that was what, what she would eventually do, you know, yeah. that she would become like a performance artist. Yeah. But she decided to start a band, uh, which was great, but it kind of disguised all the other stuff yeah. that she did with yeah. the loudness of the of the music. So, yeah. in some ways, it was a bit of a disappointment for me because everyone was missing this other aspect uh, of what she did, but that she would come back to in later years. Yeah. I mean, she'd do poetry readings and stuff in later years. So, um, but I did see her just the other night. She's doing great. Um, She's grown still up in New kids. York. Yeah. In New York. Yeah. Are you, uh, um, are you, what was I going to say? Uh, I just spaced out then. I forgot what I was going to say. That freaking bird. I'm telling you. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're Edgar Allan Poe now, and that bird <laughs> has got in your head. <laughs> We're going to visit the Duke. We're going to visit the Duke. We're here with Todd Rungman. Let me give you a plug. He's at the uh, tomorrow and Friday at the Wilton. The ninth and tenth, and uh, Friday is a a book signing at Amoeba between two and four. Starting at two, but don't wait until four. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's giving away a lot of stuff. I heard as well, but ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's giving away feathers that we're going to exactly. get from the bird outside. <laughs> Lucky feathers. Let's <laughs> go. Jonesy's Jukebox on KLOS. 
It is 1.13 on a Wednesday. Kind of cloudy. Can't figure out if it's trying to rain or not. But it's... Uh, I don't mind it. It's feel, it feels heavy, though, the weather. Does like it remind you of uh, England at all? <laughs> oh, man, it's been so long since I've uh, been there. But, yeah, I mean, that was it used to bum me out, yeah. overcast. Do you think weather affects you? I mean, you live in a beautiful place. Yeah, it does, um, especially if it doesn't change. I mean, it's not so bad when, you know... Here and there. Oh, you have a lovely week and then, you know, a rainy day or something like that, but... Yeah, the worst is just that overcast where it doesn't do anything yeah, except gray all the time. I'm going to bum you out. But uh, that was uh, Todd Look, Rundgren. we're talking the weather. <laughs> hey, all else fails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're here with Todd Rundgren. Can we still be friends? Beautiful. Then we had meatloaf. Two out of three ain't bad. Bat Out of Hell was the name of that album. Yeah. Who came up with that title, Bat Out of Hell? Was it the big guy? Uh, no. Actually, Meatloaf um, and Jim Steinman were kind of like the yin and yang of the Meatloaf phenomenon. Uh, Jim Steinman did all the writing, the conceptualizing, basically, of this character that turned out to be Meatloaf. Um, but a lot of that came from the fact that Jim Steinman actually wanted to work on Broadway. He wanted to do big, epic Broadway shows, Wagnerian presentations and stuff like that. And so I guess in that sense, there's a bit of closure in that that Bat Out of Hell musical is now playing somewhere. Toronto, I think. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so he finally got <laughs> finally got the musical off the ground, but it took forever. Yeah. So... Uh, 1977 that was released. Man, that... That sold a lot of albums. Um, over 50 million, yes. That must have bought you a nice car. <laughs> and actually, uh, the place that I'm living in, that's how I uh, oh. That's how I pay for that. Does it still Does it still generate a bit of dough? Probably not a lot because people don't. I, well, I'm not involved in it. What happened was um, after cleveland international was distributed by epic records i believe which was an arm of columbia records which got bought in the 90s by yeah. sony yeah and so meatloaf thought that somehow through the years he had been under underpaid because people were going out bragging about how many how many albums had been sold yeah, you know, yeah. people from the label or something yeah. like that bragging about how many albums had been sold and he thought well, I don't know that I've gotten that much in royalty. So they wanted to do an audit. Audit, of, yeah. Which essentially means that you chip in to pay for lawyers and accountants and stuff to go through this whole thing against their lawyers and accountants. Yeah. And I said, no, I'm not into that. Yeah. And so I offered him back the points that I had on the record. I said, you want them? You know, he said, no, I, I don't. So I sold them back to Sony. <laughs> Yeah. And got enough money to buy the property, which I'm living on now. So I don't know what kind of royalties it it, it uh, gets nowadays, but yeah. I got what I wanted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember. What, I mean, was it like millions, right, when it first came out? It seemed well, it like took, it. it took forever, actually, to first break. Okay. You know, when um, 
I hadn't planned it that way, but it turned out that I wound up financing, underwriting the the making of Bat Out of Hell. And after the record was done, they went out. I moved on to other things, and they went out to try and find someone to distribute the record because Bearsville Records, the label that I was on, passed on it. You know, they said, we're not interested. Warner's the distributor, got a chance to hear it. They didn't want it either. Nobody could figure out how to do these, you know, how to promote these overly long songs with the big fat guy. And finally they found a label, Cleveland International, tiny label. The only other artist was Ian Hunter on the label. Wow. And, uh, and they put out a single and nothing happened. They put out another single and nothing happened. But Steve Popovich, the president of uh, Cleveland International, wouldn't give up on the record. Well, he didn't have anything else to work on either, so, you know, but he wouldn't give up on the record. And a combination of things happened. One was his persistence. The other, uh, another was the fact that they toured the whole time. They constantly toured. And so they were starting to build up a, a name and a buzz around the act. And then MTV came out. Right. About the same time, right. and there weren't a whole lot of videos to, that fit the format that were you know for MTV. Yeah. But one was Paradise by the Dashboard Light, which ran like seven minutes, and DJs then were just like the you know VJs were just like DJs. It yeah. was something long, so they can go up to the roof and get high for yeah, a while. Yeah. You know, put on Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. Um, so they played it like every hour. You know, on the original MTV, they played Paradise by the Dashboard Light like almost hourly. And it was a combination of that, the endless touring, and Steve Popovich's persistence yeah. that eventually broke them on the third single. Wow. Most people would have quit, right, after the one yeah, or two singles? You know, yeah, the record label would have quit. They would have said, you know, we're, we're not going anywhere with this record, and we don't want another one yeah. <laughs> either. <laughs> so yeah. that, you know, most people assume that this was ordained somehow. No, it was purely an accident and purely, wow. you know, a, like I say, a confluence of a number of things that just made it happen. MTV was so important for a lot of, a lot of people who would not normally have cracked it. Um, uh, likely no, you know, and then there was people who really figured out how to work it, figured out that. After a while, yeah. See, like, I always thought of it as, I always thought of, of music videos as something like you find the best piece of music you can, you know, the most evocative, you know, or something that seems like visuals would go well with it, and then you craft some visuals to go with it. But no, the act, what it actually turned out to be is a commercial for your record. Yeah. You're supposed to be making an ad for yourself, yeah, you yeah. know. Yeah. And so it may not, it may be the worst piece of music on the album because it's a single. Yeah. And, and uh, so MTV eventually became, you know, a lot of it was self-same, smoke bombs, semi-nude women, all of that stuff because it worked, you know. It was like the, it was like the kind of beginning of, of VHS, that, that look. After yeah. film, <laughs> yeah. you know, like after film, it went to uh, like uh, what a, video. video, yeah, yeah, but like, like digital TV too. We were doing a lot, a lot of things were like where you special effects in video, which were a lot cheaper to do than they were in film. Yeah, like um, color keying, you know, putting yourself in yeah. front of a, a different image. You yeah. Know, yeah, that sort of thing was a lot easier to do in video than it was in film. So yeah, like porn, it used to be. You know, Forty Second Street, and then it went to video. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, that was um, 
that was the uh, result of the battle between Sony Betamax and the VHS format. And the reason why VHS won is because Sony refused to let anybody put porn on the Betamax format. (laughs) (laughs) I killed them. (laughs) It's like, what would the Internet be without free porn? (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't know, but yeah. It would be about 10% of the size that it actually is. It is funny, isn't it, that, that yeah, people do uh, like the internet for that reason. Not me. Oh, of course. I didn't mean to imply no, I didn't that think you would ever. implying me. <laughs> of course not I. <laughs> um, did you ever, um, when you were writing and record company people on your on your stuff, did, did you ever f- fall into that trap like, I need a single... Or the record company's telling you, well, we don't hear a single talk. What you got? Well, I had to think that way when I was producing other people because yeah. often that was part of the mandate. The act wanted would want a single as well. So even if you knew that the rest of the record was not going to make top 40, you had to root around for something you know, that you thought would at least be releasable. And sometimes it succeeds, you know, sometimes it works. But it's one of those things where a lot of times you have no control over it. Uh, I, I've i had what they call turntable hits, where a DJ will play the hell out of it, but for some reason it doesn't, it doesn't take it. off. The yeah. DJ likes it, the audience doesn't like it, yeah. or something like that. Or, for instance, Bang the Drum All Day was never released as a single. What would have been probably the biggest single I ever had was never released as a single. Yeah. So because it was so uncharacteristic, you know. And and, it got played a lot on the radio. That well, track. what happened was it first college radio picked it up for some reason. Then uh, sporting events right. started started to take uh, take on a life of its own at like sporting events, starting I think with hockey and then football games, but also. DJ started to use it as a Friday drive time song. It would play it every Friday. Yeah. Because it was, because of that, uh, and I'd bang on that drum like it was the boss's head. You know, it's everybody's TGI Friday yeah. sort of sentiment. So, yeah, yeah. so it started getting played uh, in that context. And then it eventually started getting used in like films and commercials and things like that. And for a while, for a couple of years, it was like the Carnival Cruise, Cruise Line's theme song. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, I almost didn't have to work. You know, yeah. they were, you know, I almost could have stayed home and banged the drum all day because, you know, they were paying lots of money to make that their theme song. Then they started sinking all those boats and decided that they needed to change their image. Yeah. So, this is something a little more sober, I guess. Yeah. Well, this is definitely the song we're going to play next was definitely a, a single and it did well. Psychedelic Furs. Oh, yeah. Love my way. You did an, you did the album as well, though, yeah, right? Not it's just called the song. Uh, Forever Now. The yeah. Song of the... We're going to play after the Duke. The Duke. Okay. You know what the Duke is? What is that? The Duke of Kent. We're going to pay the rent. Oh, pay the rent, Duke of Kent. Okay. It's a bit of you know. Yeah, I know. It's Cockney. Cockney and bleeding yeah. idiot. Cockney's idiots they are. <laughs> so we'll be right back. We're here with Todd Rungren. He's a uh, playing tomorrow and Friday at the Wilton and he's got a book signing at Amoeba from 2 to 4 on Friday as well take it away son
You're listening to Jonesy's Jukebox, KLOS. That was Todd Rundgren, bang on drum all day. <laughs> Isn't that there? Well, we were talking about, you know, the, the subconscious. Yeah. That's a song I dreamed. You it's did. not a song I would have thought up. You yeah. know, it had to had to have come from my subconscious. Why it did, I don't know. And maybe some little fairy snuck in there you know, and said, here, this doesn't make any sense to you now, but in 20 or 30 years, you're going to make a lot of money off of this when a cruise line uses it for their theme song. Because it's so uh, not you. No, that's what I mean. It's not. It's not something I would have sat down and wrote. I'd say, "Oh, I got to write this song." No, it's got a, a simplicity and mindlessness to it that can only have come from a subconscious. So, will you be playing this at the Wilton? Unfortunately, no. We don't play this. <laughs> it. Uh, a lot of people would be happy if I did, but yeah. I have to admit that I. It's one of my least favorite songs yeah. to play. In fact, yeah. I only, recently I've only played it when I was out with Ringo because he insists I play it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, how did it go down? Oh, everybody loves the song. Yeah, you know, it's not as if I don't like to play it because people don't like it. I don't like to play it because it's, you just don't like playing it. It's just it's a lot. It's just a lot of work because I have to play the drums through it. <laughs> you know? uh, I did a ukulele uh, version of it though. That's a little yeah. easier. That that one I I will whip it out sometimes. Mm. Um, you're not you're not playing at the uh, at the uh, amoeba. You're not. You're just doing the signing. No, right? just signing. Yeah. yeah, that's uh, that's Friday. Mr. Todd Rundgren is at amoeba from two to four, and then he's playing that night too at the Wilton, and he's playing tomorrow at the Wilton too. Um, Love my way. Forever now, nineteen eighty two. That was a good. Uh, that was a good one. Did you, were they were they were they fun? They seemed kind of normal dudes. They were. Um, they were still a little bit. Um, Didn't know the ropes. No, they were fun. They had a couple records out already. They had. Uh, they'd had a hit in Pretty in Pink. Yeah. But they went through a personnel change. You know, they used to have that sax player. They featured a sax player, and they fired the sax player. And I think they had a keyboard player and got rid of him, too. So when they came to do the record, the lineup had sort of changed a little bit. Yeah. And ergo, the sound changed a bit. And they were a little bit, you know, punky, attitudinous, definitely. Yeah. You know, they had attitude because you had to. That was, you yeah. know. Everyone had to. They came from London, and everybody in London was still in that sort of, you know, post-sex pistols yeah. phase where you had to have attitude about it, you yeah. know. And so, um, but you know, we got along well, and uh, and they were very open to the ideas that I had, you know, about doing the record because since they had a brand new lineup, they weren't exactly sure where to go. They were still writing, actually, still writing some songs for the record. Um, which I usually frown upon, but if you start re recording and then people start writing, then that's that can be a good thing. Yeah. Now, you did uh, you did like the first Sparks album, didn't you? Yeah, they were called Half Nelson at the time. <laughs> like a like a wrestling term. Yeah, it was like yeah, it wasn't spe it was spelled H A F Nelson, you know, yeah. but uh, it was like a wrestling term yeah. and they were just really weird. You know, it was the reason why I did them. You know, sometimes I do things because I know nobody else will do it. Yeah. But it has to be done. 
You know, <laughs> somebody has has to do that. So it was like meatloaf. You know, I said nobody. They they'd been to every producer in in the industry, and nobody wanted to work with it. They couldn't figure out how to put it together. Yeah. And I thought this is so weird. This is a spoof of Bruce Springsteen, and I'm going to do it. Yeah. Did you get a call from? Um, oh, he's going to kill me. <laughs> he's going to kill you. The baby driver. Edgar Wright. He, they, 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 oh yeah, they, yes, I did. I was in their documentary. Yeah, yeah, and he 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 gave me a wonderful surprise. He actually hid the brothers while oh, yeah? I was doing the interview, and then brought them in at the very end. And we hadn't seen each other like in decades. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, it's not finished yet. I don't, not, I don't I'm not sure so. if it's finished, but did I you did, have, did it a while ago, maybe five months ago, maybe. Yeah, did you have to wear black? Uh, there was no particular requirement. Uh, um, well, I was at a concept. Yeah, I mean, they said you wear a black T-shirt, and cause oh. <laughs> it's, it's like black and white in the background. Oh, maybe I was already wearing <laughs> something yeah. black. But uh, I was, I was a huge, huge Sparks fan, especially the uh, Kimono My House. Yeah, <laughs> that was a great album, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to see that documentary. There's a lot of uh, interesting. Yeah, a lot of people have you know uh, guilty pleasure about Sparks. You know. It's one of those things where a lot of Americans don't – they were never really big right. in the USA. Right. They went to England right. and became big in England and in Europe. So a lot of people don't really know the history of the band or even understand the kind of like the quirky nature of what they do. Yeah. Um, but that – I'm sort of thankful that they do it, you know, because – yeah, everybody's trying to be, you know, imagine yeah. dragons nowadays. You yeah, know? and you know, yeah. We, there's got to be enough of that already. I'm with you there. I went and saw them at the place on Wilshire uh, Boulevard, that El Rey, and they were fantastic. They had a good little rocking band, and they were great, man. They were so good. I love Russell. You know, just deadpan the whole time. Yeah, that's Ron. Uh, I mean, Ron. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> get them mixed up. But but, but yeah. And he's a sweetheart. He's a sweetheart. Oh, they're both, they're, they're both great guys. You know, yeah. they're still kind of almost like kids in a way. Yeah. And uh, and still having fun with music. They did a thing with Franz Ferdinand. Right. Their little super group. Right. Right. That fir- that album, the the Cabana Maya. So I, I, they that was a big album, and I saw them at Hammersmith Odeon. Now at Apollo, and they were. They were rocking. It was like a rocking band. It wasn't weird. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the structures was weird, but it was, big, you know, big distorted guitar, really rocking. And uh, they were one of my favorites. And, and and you're right, it never took off. That happens in the States. No one cares about it. But in England, they were going nuts. Yeah. No accounting for, uh, for this business. <laughs> you just never know, right? Yeah. No, it's, well, there's only room enough. For so much, but things have changed so much that you know there are a lot of great bands out there that um, are more or less just self-promoted. They never went through the usual sort of go to a record label audition, you know that sort of thing. Yeah, you know they self-promoted from the beginning, and they're out there to be found. They're just you know they're on the internet. Yeah, like the Lemon Twigs. Yeah, um, just yeah. a couple of kids and their first record. They were like seventeen years old when they put out yeah. first record. Now they're only just like in their hitting their twenties. Yeah. Um, in the nineties, one of the first 
offerings you did to put sell your stuff on the internet? Uh, Patronet, yeah. Did it, it, was, did it uh, happen? Uh, I did. It was kind of in a in an era where I I picked the most difficult time to try and do it. It was before there's Facebook, all these other social yeah. media things. Yeah. But essentially, it was a social media platform where fans would directly support artists and their projects, and essentially take the record label out of the out of the mix. So it's like GoFundMe. Kind of, yeah. There was a GoFundMe aspect about it. There was an interactive aspect about yeah. it. It was the it was metaphorically more like television than it was the internet because the internet started out as a, as a print metaphor. Yeah, you know, it was text with pictures and stuff like that, and it was hard to get video in there. But we used a lot of flash um, and things like that, and so it was very way ahead of its time. But it also revealed all of the things that were going to happen, you know, security issues, um, identity issues, you know, where people go on and pretend to be other people, right. Russian trolls and that sort of yeah. thing. I had that. People would go on and pretend to be me. And I had to keep thinking up newer and newer sort of nicknames for myself to ban other people from using. Yeah. You know, they kept trying to fool other people into thinking that it was me. Um, uh, privacy things like your, you know, like your data and your credit card information, all that stuff, dealing with all of that stuff. But the worst part about it was it was too early technologically because things kept changing every year. Right. You know, app, if, if Apple was the only platform that I had to target, I, I would have been great. But the problem is it was the PC market, and PCs were just chaos. Yeah. Still a zoo, you know, PCs, because there's no standardization. That's the difference. All Apples are the same. All PCs are different. <laughs> but that's like the most sold in the world right pcs is like well it's a re work people use them at workplaces yeah well they're using workplaces because corporate co companies make decisions based on the bottom line right you know and the bottom line to them cheaper. is how much does it cost yeah, you yeah, know yeah, yeah. what's it cost and the thing about pcs you know apple had a fixed price you couldn't buy it they do to this day yeah. you know the price of an apple is the price of an apple no matter where you buy it you have software and hardware integrated, fully integrated with each other. And the whole PC world is go out and buy a, a chassis, you know, go buy a motherboard, <laughs> yeah. you know. All the time you're shopping for the cheapest thing you can find, and then you put it together. Microsoft software is always buggy and creepy and junky, you know, and stuff like that. So you don't realize the value of your own time. Yeah. You look at the bottom line. Oh, I, I put this together for half the price of an Apple, and it runs twice as fast. Yeah. Except you spend most of the time trying to put out bugs. You know, you wasted all that time building it, yeah. starters, yeah. and now you're the only one who knows how to service it, <laughs> that sort of thing. So people just don't put a proper value on their own time. Right. I, I, I attempted once to get on there, and I just didn't know what to do. It was so alien and weird. It's like it's like having a BlackBerry as opposed to an iPhone. Yeah, a BlackBerry to me is a nightmare too. Well, it's to me it's just like basic things. A lot of people don't even sense like heuristics, the way the mouse feels, you know, how connected it feels to the cursor on the screen. Yeah, you know whether it feels like you're actually doing that. Or for me, most PCs, I'm trying to get a little tiny checkbox. I'm trying to get the 
cursor to land on that little tiny checkbox, and I'm just struggling, and my hand is all tensed up. You know, it's I guess eventually you adapt to it and you figure out how to do it. But yeah. for me, the you know the heuristics, the feel of it is completely different. Yeah. How we do it with time? We're doing okay. We do need to do a little contest here before we get done. Do you want to do Woo-hoo! it? Do you want to do it now? Yeah, let's do it now because people are waiting to qualify for the 5K Friday. So we'll do caller 25 right now at 800-955-KLOS to get in the running for the $5,000 that we're giving away at 530 on Fridays with Gary Moore. And you'll win a pair of tickets to Dead & Company at the Hollywood Bowl on June 3rd, and those tickets are provided by LNHS. All right. So now what are we doing? We've got a couple more. One more song. One more song, and then we're knocking it on the head. Well, I guess we'll have to play XTC then. (laughs) Dear God, right? Yeah. <laughs> Skylarking. Well, I saw a documentary about them guys a little while ago. It was very interesting. I really didn't know a lot of their story, but it was a... I don't know if you've seen it, but it was a good good documentary. I may have seen it, but, uh, but yeah, it would have been a while ago. Do you, do you think he's a brainiac, the, the singer? That he has what? <laughs> he's, a, he's a brainiac, like he's a smart... Uh, very smart. Um, that part, you know, part of the problem is like he's always the smartest guy in the room, you yeah. know. And One being, guys. A, you know, producing a record for them was mm. always an issue because he always knew better than the producer what right. was supposed to happen. And um, what he normally would do is because he got stage fright really bad and the band stopped touring. And so the only music, the only time they ever made music was in the studio. So they didn't mind if they just spent a year making a record. Yeah. Because once the record's over, the fun's over. And so normally that's what would happen, you know, and they would they would work on the record, take a long time to do it, and then it would come to the mixing, and then it would, then the, <laughs> it would really start. Yeah. And he, essentially Andy would be so anal about the mixing that he would drive the producer out of the studio, uh. you know, either... Either you would go crazy or you had another project you finally had to go on to, and so yeah. you would just leave it to him. And uh, and fortunately, I caught the band at a point where their label had given them an ultimatum because their records were selling less and less and less. We don't need a single. Yeah. Partly that, and partly the fact that since they never toured, they weren't promoting their right. own records. Right. You know? So they, you got the only thing you can do is like get singles somehow. Yeah. And so I knew about the process. I knew what it was like to to work with them. I actually, after I finished the record, I got a letter of condolence from Gus Dudgeon, you know, because he had produced a record or two with them, you yeah. know, and he knew what the experience was like. And for the first time ever, when we finally finished the record and, and it was time to mix it, you know, I have a certain procedure, which is I will, I'll mix it, then you come in and listen. You don't be there while yeah, I'm yeah. putting the mix together. Yeah, yeah. Because when you do that, everybody in the band only hears themselves. You know, can you make the drums a little louder? Can you make the guitar a little louder? You know, <laughs> like nobody has any perspective about the whole thing. And so I will put together a mix, call them in, say, what's make suggestions now about how to change the mix? And a lot of times they'd be happy with it, minor suggestions. We got three songs in, and they said, we're going back to England. And I thought, oh, okay, you know. Great for me because I don't have to worry about them, them you know, torturing me yeah. through the mix. But, you know, Andy went home and he badmouthed the record to anybody who would listen. To the press, he said, this is the worst record uh. we ever made, you know, because that was his mood at that particular point. And then, to add insult to injury, they took Dear God off the record. Right. 
They took it off the record. And, that, and this is the only time I ever did anything like it. I called up the A&R guy and I said, don't do this. Yeah. This I was- usually leave the marketing to the label, you know, say, I'll just make the thing. You market it. And I said, don't do this. Don't take Dear God off the label. This was one of them songs that kind of took off on college radio, right? Again, it was college radio. They paired it up with a, um, with a, a Depeche Mode song that was also about God. You know, I can't remember the title of it. But they would do like this, you know, double play Dear God and this Depeche Mode song. And actually, Dear God was on the flip side of the single they released. The A side was Grass. Right. right. And so the record got flipped. They had to put Dear God back on the LP and remaster it. And they remastered it themselves and they did it wrong. They <laughs> started complaining about it, trying to blame it on me afterwards. So, anyway, it's, uh, yeah, it's probably their most successful record. And so there. Wow, wow, wow. Well, thanks for coming by, Todd. Always a pleasure. We're going to knock it on the head right now. We're going to leave you with XTC. Dear God, Moby's on the box tomorrow. And uh, that was a good, informative chat with you. Thanks for coming by. Let me give you a plug again, yes? (laughs) Sure. Tomorrow and Friday at the Wilton, Mr. Todd Rungman's playing. And on Friday from 2 to 4, he's doing a book signing. Uh, Amoeba Records, and uh, we'll leave you with XTC, and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.